I'm Justin Gibbony, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Well, we are about to enter yet another presidential election season. And if you're anything like me, you're not super excited about it. We can already feel the temperature slowly rising in the room. And I think we're all wondering what's going to happen inside our churches and outside our churches on the streets and in our communities. And so I thought one of the best things we could do was to, as we're entering into this, prepare our hearts and our minds for this upcoming season. Prepare our hearts and minds for the debates that are going to happen. Prepare our hearts and minds for the votes that we'll have to make. And I could think of no one better to help us do that than Justin Gibney. Justin Gibney is an attorney and political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also the co-founder and president of the AND Campaign. The AND Campaign is a fantastic organization that's giving people a gospel-centered worldview in their politics that's committed to compassion and conviction. He's also the co-host of a podcast called The Church Politics Podcast with Chris Butler, where they look at current political issues and policy debates. It's a fantastic podcast. Again, I can't speak highly enough of Justin, and I wasn't let down by this conversation. He helped me prepare my heart and my mind for this upcoming season. Justin, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So we are about to embark on yet another presidential election cycle. And I know I can't be the only person who's feeling some level of existential dread. (laughs) The last two elections have been among the most divisive that I can remember, both inside and outside the church. And so I know I've just talked to lots of Christians who are already thinking, look, we're not in it to win it. The elections is what I mean. We're not about politics here. We're about evangelism. We can let this horse race and wash create more obstacles to the faith by engaging with it and becoming highly political, or we can just ignore the whole thing. And maybe that's what a lot of Christians think we should be doing is just stop worrying about and engaging in the political discourse. But my guess is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, my guess is that you might disagree with that. So I'm curious, if someone said that to you, what would you say in response? Yeah, I would say, well, I understand their concern. I think seeing what happened in 2016 and 2020, there's reason to worry that Christians might once again kind of compromise our witness by really not being distinctive in character as we address this issue. So I would acknowledge that there's something there, but I would say that's the wrong conclusion to draw. So I don't agree with the complete premise, but do disagree with the conclusion. There is a chance that we might once again not represent ourselves and not represent our savior very well. However, politics matters. Elections matter. We need to do our best to engage, to steward the influence that we've been given as citizens in that moment 
there's too many major issues, whether it's immigration, whether, you know, issues dealing with the war in Ukraine, all these other things that matter to a lot of people and a lot of lives. And as I've said before, politics is a very robust way for us to have influence on our neighbor. And so we need to steward that rather than running away from that responsibility. I think another thing I'll hear Christians say when they maybe are saying we need to retreat from politics, political discourse, is they'll say something that I'm going to have lots of questions about, but it's common enough that I want to address it, which is this. Well, you know, we live in the United States, and that means that we have the separation of church and state. And so, you know, I think that means for me that I need to kind of keep my Christian faith out of the voting booth, that I need to, as a Christian, maybe be somewhat disengage from what's happening to the state. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say, you know, the separation between church and state is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts that there is. As you said, some people think it means that your religious values cannot be used as you engage politics. But that, I would say, for any Christian that takes their faith seriously is impossible. But not only for Christians, I think for people in other faiths, for people who are secular, you know, we kind of present being secular as neutral, but it's not neutral. You have values too. And the founders, if you look at the documents, I mean, the words separation church and state aren't in the constitution, but there is that concept there. They weren't trying to get people to not use their values. Every law that is made is based on some values. So if you're not using Christian values, you're just using somebody else's values. It doesn't really solve anything. I think what we're asked to do is make sure that we're not establishing a church, right? That's the establishment clause. And then make sure that we're not impeding on other people's free exercise. And so we have the free exercise clause. That's what we're supposed to do. Not say that somehow magically I can vote, but not <laughs> vote based on my values. That doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't make sense to me either. That's usually the question I ask. Well, if it's not your Christian values, what are you bringing to the voting booth? Because like you said, no one comes in to this neutral. Earlier, you said that you think politics is one of the key ways that we can go about loving our neighbors. And obviously you're drawing that in some sense out of scripture. So, I mean, how does the Bible call us to political action? And what examples do we even have in the Bible of, you know, healthy, robust, neighbor-loving political action? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, a lot of times I go to Amos in the Old Testament. What he did was he went into the public square. He was sent by God into the public square to say, hey, you are treating the poor unfairly. There's partiality in your courts. And the interesting thing about him is that you know, he talked about some of those issues that people would say are social justice issues, but he also talked about morality issues. He brought those together in public square and said, this is wrong and it needed to be changed. To me, that's an excellent example of how we should engage. You see it from Isaiah, you see it in many other places, but it's very clear to me that there is this imperative to engage. You can't just watch people around you suffer. And I think another place to go for that general concept is First John 3, where it tells us what love is and that love is actually self-sacrifice. And in a situation where you can give your neighbor something and you just say, oh, bless your heart, then you really don't love them. And if we look at love in that self-sacrificial way, as you know, we see love personified in Christ, then we know there's something more than just telling somebody that we care about them. There's work that we have to do. There's an, an imperative there. And there's no reason that I see that we wouldn't steward that through politics. Now, it's not the only way, and it can certainly be corrupted, 
But I do think it presents us with an opportunity to love our neighbor in a real way. And I like what you said. This isn't the only way because sometimes we get in these binary ways of thinking. Okay, the only way to change the world is or our society, uh, social order is through politics. And the truth is that's a way <laughs> that we change the world, an important way. But I also love what you're bringing up here, you know, James and John, who tell people, look, if you say you love someone, but you're withholding from them the very thing that they need to live a whole, full life, that's not real love. It's something, but you can't call that love. And I think we need, especially in a society like our own, where we're able to vote, where we're able to participate in the political process, like you said, we have this responsibility to steward our citizenship for the common good, for the people around us. I want to get kind of practical here and explore how do we do this, though, right? Because everybody might come to say, okay, you're right. I need to bring my Christian values into the voting booth. I need to bring my Christian values to the political process. But when we start getting to the nitty gritty, how we actually do that, we start hitting a lot of disagreement. In your book, you argue that we need to allow Jesus's kingdom vision to shape our political priorities and values. To be honest, I think most Christians would say, well, that's exactly what I'm doing. And yet those Christians end up voting for different candidates. They end up taking different positions on various policy issues. And so if we're all saying we're trying to live out kingdom values, why does that happen? Do some people just have it wrong? Well, I think some of that is okay. I don't think the Bible tells us what to think on every single issue, or even if we're taking care of the poor, it doesn't tell us exactly which policy is the best way to do that. So there is room for disagreement. There's room for Christians to vote for different candidates. What the Ann campaign tries to provide is a framework. Because I do think while there's room for us to be different, there are some issues where we should be very close to being you know, the same in that regard. And so whether it's the sanctity of life, whether it's conversations about how we treat the poor, what that means to me is we take the poor, for instance, it doesn't mean that we have to have the exact same economic policy. It does mean that the poor shouldn't be an afterthought. And we should sincerely, when we look at our economic policies and what we support, include them in that conversation and try to make sure that they're taken care of. That's what it means to me. So are there different ways to go about that? Sure. Are there ways that are outside of that framework? I would say so too. And so that's what I think of. I mean, making a sincere effort to really represent love and compassion in the public square, but also represent the truth. And, you know, I think when we read the Bible, if we do it prayerfully and we do it in community, the Bible has a hermeneutic. And I think it does lead us to this framework that we should all have in common. So it seems like you're arguing, depending on the issue, depending on the policy, Christians may have more or less latitude in how they respond. There might be some areas where we have a very small amount of latitude. This is just kind of the right way to do things. In other areas, we're going to have a lot more latitude. We're going to have some disagreement. Could you give some examples of issues where you think Christians don't have much space for disagreement? And then I want to go to the other one and say, hey, let's give some examples of issues where we have a lot more latitude, where we're probably going to have some disagreement. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of them, you know, as I said before, is the sanctity of life. Even with that, we may have different policies, but I think for a Christian to just disregard the unborn life or disregard the life of the mother, right? I do think that's problematic. I think that you run into some trouble there. The Bible is full of kind of unjust imprisonment too, right? So if I were to go into a space basically saying lock them up and really wasn't thoughtful about what our criminal justice system look like. I think in that space too, there's an area where you get into unbiblical territory if you're not concerned about how people are being treated, whether it's based on their race or class or any of those other issues. So we should be at least seeking the same thing on issues like that. What I kind of hear you repeating is that when it comes to the values or the things that we should care about, we should have a 
lot of agreement. We should be able to say, hey, we agree these are important issues. But in general, when it comes to the policies, how we try to land the plane and live it out in our life together, that's where we're going to start seeing more areas of disagreement. Well, one question I have on those areas of priorities or values that we have is it seems to me that right now in our political discourse, we're not doing a great job of prioritizing our values. So thinking about Augustine, he talks about how sin comes from disordered loves. We love some things more than we should and some things less than we should, and that's what ends up creating sin. And I kind of wonder if there's something similar in our social order. When we prioritize and we make a big deal out of things that should be smaller deals, like second order or third order deals, and we ignore primary concerns, we end up with a disordered society where there's injustice. And so I'm curious, like for you, I mean, how do you prioritize? These are the things that I really care about, and then these are the secondary things that I care about, but less about than those primary things. Do you do that? Are you prioritizing your values? Yeah, I think we have to do that. One of the things that I think about in that conversation is just human dignity. What are the issues that touch directly on someone's human dignity? And so you can see Christians throughout history, whether it was with abolition, Jim Crow, or even, again, the right to life conversation, really concentrating on those issues that say this touches directly on somebody's human dignity. And I think one of the biggest places that we kind of get disordered is kind of putting our own self-interest first. Something else that we do when we prioritize or have bad priorities is kind of let others decide that. I think there are a lot of Christians who allow their party or their ideological tribe to decide what issues are the most important, which ones they're going to get upset about. I mean, one thing we have to see, and there are a lot of good people that are more partisan than I would probably advise them to be. But one thing you see about a lot of tribal back and forth is there's always these kind of things that they know will get a kind of Pavlov dog response. If I say race or if I say this, you're automatically enraged. And when you let somebody control you in that way, you're not actually controlling your own priorities. And so one thing I advise Christians to do is be slow to let others make you excited one way or the other. Look at issues soberly. That doesn't mean you can't be passionate, but we have to make sure that we're not outsourcing our public witness and others are kind of deciding what our priorities should be and where we should put our resources instead of thinking it through for ourselves. We're recording this in June for the record, so I'm going to ask you to make a bit of a prediction here. And if it seems off, it might be because we're months in advance of this coming out. But do you think in this upcoming election, there's going to be some issues that are going to be top priorities that maybe for Christians should be secondary and tertiary things? And then I want to invert that and say, are there any issues that you're not going to hear a president talk about? But man, that's really important issue that we should be discussing. You know, I think one of the things that's going to play a a big role in this is just a conversation about wokeness. And it's not to say that none of those issues are important. Some of them are important. Should they be driving the entire conversation? I'm not sure that they should be driving the, the entire conversation. I mean, we have a very serious issue when it comes to immigration. There may be some economy issues, recession issues that come up at that time. And then obviously there's the whole back and forth again when it comes to the abortion conversation. Those are going to be part of the conversation. I worry, though, that some of the things they get us riled up about on either side about, you know, what is woke, what it isn't, um, book bans, what's really going on, what's not going on. Some of those will probably have a little more say than they should. And sadly, a lot of propaganda is a part of those conversations. But again, it's one of those issues where we should control how seriously we take things and not necessarily listen to the propaganda. 
that's what I'm trying to prepare myself for because I think it is so easy to be caught up in the river of emotion and anger and frustration. And because everybody else is having a conversation, like you said, maybe it's around wokeness, maybe it's around LGBTQ issues. It's not that those aren't important issues, but there really might be more salient problems that we're facing as a nation that we have ignored. And I mean, you brought up immigration as you know a potential example of that. You know how we're caring for the immigrant amongst us is an incredibly salient question. Something the Bible actually has a lot. <laughs> to say about. And I think it's a good challenge for Christians in the missus to say, okay, are my priorities straight, right? Am I voting for this person on the basis of something that's probably a tertiary issue and ignoring those primary fundamental things that are sitting on the table? Are there any other big salient things that you think, hey, we should really be paying attention to this in the presidential election? I mean, there's a whole lot of them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Our economy has become one where wages have been driven so low that it's just hard for people to survive. It's hard for people to start families. That should be one of the biggest issues that we see. We need to look at the balance of power between workers and corporations. And I'm far from anybody who would call themselves a socialist. But even within capitalism, you'll see some of the fathers of capitalism really saying how important it is for workers to have some power, too. I think that's a major issue when it comes to wages, when it comes to education, you know, what does an education mean? Is it as valuable as it should be when it comes to, you know, people putting in a lot of money and putting in a lot of work and not really getting the same investment? Those are issues that people have to touch on because there's a lot of people struggling. And then housing, which is not necessarily as much of a national issue, I don't think. I think sometimes it's more local issue, but there is a national component to it. And it's one that we really need to talk about, especially folks who live in uh, major cities. I also think it's really interesting to see the issues that maybe animate different groups of people. And these are things that actually probably both of them animate me. But on the left, you might see issues of systemic racism, for example, being something that's animating a lot of the discussion. And on the right, we're also seeing a different form of systemic injustice, which is what's happening to men right now. Men are receiving 15 percent less bachelor's degrees. Their wages peaked. The average blue collar workers wages peaked in 1970. We have a huge number of men in their prime working age right now who are not working working at the moment. And the right's very willing to say that's a systemic issue. (laughs) We need to do something with it. We see these different salient systemic issues that maybe neither side wants to acknowledge or deal with. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think because they go against our narratives. One of the biggest problems that we have in our public square right now is people are more interested in maintaining their narratives and proving that a certain ideological conclusion is true than actually dealing with a lot of the issues. And people actually almost hurt themselves and hurt their argument and everything else just to maintain a narrative, right? So if I am on the conservative side and I give too much credence to the racial justice conversation, then I'm actually hurting the idea that everything's okay racially in this country, right? If I'm on the left and I admit that men, white men, black men, or other men are really suffering, then I'm hurting my argument when it comes to women and all these things. And it's really not true, right? We know that there are issues that women are going through still, and we need to be very serious about them. That shouldn't cause us to ignore the depths of despair that we see in a lot of men today. Another issue I could have added there was the fentanyl issue and the drug addiction, the suicides. Those are issues that we should care about too, and people should have a plan for. But our narratives get in the way of us getting democracy done, doing the hard work of democracy, and our narratives get in the way of loving our neighbors because we're more worried about how we look and and how we can present ourselves. Going back to the idea of we should have 
values that are shaped by the Bible, by Jesus's vision of what the kingdom should be. And we should see some broad agreement amongst Christians on what those values are. But then once we get down to the policy level of how we're going to activate those values, how we're going to try to live out those values in our life together, that's where we start having disagreement. One of my questions is, do you think that the Bible can speak to specific policy issues? In other words, it's one thing to say the Bible tells us we should care about the migrant, about the immigrant in our community. It's a whole different thing to say the Bible says that this is the best policy to care for immigrants. How do you navigate that? I think you have to look at the principles. Some things are spoken to more specifically than others. But again, let's take immigration since you said it. What should our comprehensive immigration bill look like? Does the Bible give us specifics? No. Should we be having women and children or others in cages and putting them in situations that are just inhumane? We should probably be able to say we need to, at all costs, try to avoid that. And so I think scripture, again, it's unfaithful to say it says things that it doesn't say. I even question people who say that the Bible says we have to be socialist or we have to be capitalist. As those two things have been manifest, are you sure the Bible is telling us that we really had to go to those spaces? Even if there's elements of one or the other that we see in the Bible, we have to be very careful about that. And I think it's really about making a good faith effort to uphold those principles and faithfully apply them, thoughtfully apply them to what's going on in our sphere of influence. So would you say that application is less a matter of I'm applying the biblical principle and more just a matter of practical wisdom? Like I've developed an expertise in this topic. I've tried to understand the kinds of values around this topic that the Bible gives me. And now using that expertise and those values, I'm just trying to improvise what I think the best solution for this particular problem might be. Is that the path forward? I don't think those are mutually exclusive, though. I mean, I think applying the principles is important. I think what you're getting is that it doesn't get us all the way there. Mm -hmm. And so there is some observation and study that we have to do in addition to that in order to do it in the right way. So, yeah. Let me give you a crazy example of what I'm talking about. Ted Cruz, he wrote a tweet. He was tweeting about a law that passed in Uganda. The tweet will explain it. It says, this Uganda law is horrific and wrong. Any law criminalizing homosexuality or imposing the death penalty for aggravated homosexuality is grotesque and an abomination. All civilized nations should join together in condemning this human rights abuse. So there's a law in Uganda that is criminalizing homosexual behavior. And Tom Askell, who's a well-known Reformed Baptist, he's the president of a public theology center. So this is exactly the kind of place that's supposed to specialize in thinking theologically about public issues. He responded to Ted, and this is what he said. He said, tell it to God, Ted. And then he quotes from Leviticus. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Leviticus 2013. Was this law God gave his old covenant people horrific and wrong? Ted responds to him, and this is what he says. Pastor, I don't know you, but I honor your ministry, your biblical and analysis is in error. Jesus told us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. We're talking about the laws of man, not Old Testament laws of God. Do you really believe that the U.S. government should execute every person who is gay? Leviticus also tells us, for anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Should the government execute every child who's disrespectful to his parent? That ignores grace and the New Testament. As our Savior taught us, let he who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. So this is one of these 
bizarro debates that we see, but I see these things happen both in person inside of churches and online and other places where someone's doing exactly what we're saying. They're taking a Old Testament law and they're saying, okay, one for one, maybe we should apply this into our own society. So how do you respond to this debate? You're not going to make me agree with Ted Cruz, are you? (laughs) I mean, I think... That debate probably took up more time than it should have. Yes. Uh, I don't I don't I don't fault Ted Cruz for saying that this is a bad you know, that these laws are bad. I think I I understand why he said that the follow up and the argument about whether we should not want people to just be executed based on their attractions or whatever. Those are the things that can become just huge distractions. I don't know how you read about Jesus and how he treated people who may have been in very similar situations and not understand the compassion that we should have for that, that the human dignity of those people. And, you know, we ourselves have been forgiven. And I think that that may be one thing that we forget when we get in those back and forths. So I understand why Senator Cruz maybe thought he needed to respond to that because it probably did need some correction. It's just when we have those back and forth and they take up so much time and people will talk about that more than many of the policies that me and you have gone back and forth on. It is unfortunate. It's just sad that we can't have a discussion where compassion is also at the forefront and then we can kind of move on and get to other issues. I think that's a really good point, which is it's not merely what values does the Bible give us on XYZ topic. There's also a fundamental question about what kind of character is God inviting us to have and to bring to the table? What's our posture? And that's one of the big problems with this weird debate that happens is you have some bad posture. Like you said, a lack of compassion, a lack of forgiveness. I think these are some of the challenges that Christians face when they start trying to say, how am I going to apply the Bible to what I'm doing inside of the voting booth? How does this work? I think another challenge we face when it comes to applying Scripture to the present is that We live in a society that's shaped by governmental and economic systems that were entirely foreign (laughs) to the biblical authors. You know, they could not have imagined the kind of a society that we're living in today. And so maybe a sub-question along these same lines is just how do we translate ancient wisdom for an ancient society into modern wisdom? You know, how do we draw on the Old and New Testament to shape our present political vision? Number one, prayerfully. I don't think we can expect to do it just based on our own devices. And we have to be careful with this conversation because, yes, we need to make sure that we look at the Bible within context, understand the things it was addressing and not addressing. But we don't ever want to get to the space to say that it's not relevant or now we can lean on our own understanding because, you know, a lot of people do that to just throw away the authority of Scripture. So I want to be very careful about that. I think the Bible and those principles do apply. It's on us to be prayerful and and figure out how to best apply them. But it's not always easy. And we need to be humble in knowing that sometimes we can be wrong. We have been wrong. So to go into that humbly, to hear other people out, that's why I believe Christians should really care about civic pluralism having respect for other people's point of view, hearing them out and then being confident enough to stand on what we believe. But again, it's not easy to apply those principles. We don't want to get too far into the idea that, well, they're so old and all this stuff that it doesn't really matter now. It's not relevant to what we say. I think that's wrong. I think that has led us down some bad roads as well. And so we just have to be prayerful. We have to do it again within community. And as you said, with the right posture of one of love and truth and really seeing how that compassion and conviction fit together. I really think that's the key, how that compassion and conviction fit together. And then being vigilant to make sure that we, you know, hopefully got that synergy correct.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Let's pull back the camera again. Preparing ourselves for a presidential election is what I hope this podcast is doing, just making people think before we're in the heat of a very divisive time, prepare our hearts and prepare our minds. Obviously, part of that's what we're already discussing. You know, how do we think through what we value? How do we prioritize our values? How do we apply the Bible to our own social order and where we live and, you know, kind of a, a modern age? But this takes me to a different issue that I think is also kind of thorny and hard to work around, and that's partisanship. Now, I might be wrong. You're a registered Democrat. Is that correct? Do I still have that right? That's correct. Well, you don't register in Georgia, but I usually get that ballot. That helps. So is there a case to be made for partisanship? I, and I mean, just to be, you know, full disclosure, I'm pretty independent. Missouri is exactly the same as Georgia. I don't have to register for a party to vote in a primary. So I've never had to register for a party. But I'm curious. I mean, do you think there's a place for partisanship in Christian political identity? I think there's a case for engagement in partisan politics. I think there can be a practical benefit to engaging partisan politics. I mean, we've always had two parties. And so in depending where you're at strategically, it can be helpful. I take partisanship as something a little bit different, almost as I take party loyalty. Can a Christian be concerned about party loyalty? I question how concerned about party loyalty we can be. Does that mean that we support the party when they're wrong? Does that mean that we support our leaders when they have bad behavior? What exactly does that loyalty mean? And I think we need to be very careful in how we get into that. The other thing I would say is that a Christian cannot afford to have their identity in a party. So when you say, Justin, are you a Democrat? I can say, yeah, but I could care less about the party, really. I mean, I could vote for a Democrat or Republican at any time. To me, it's a tool. And so you could sit here and you could really criticize the Democrats or my favorite Democrat politician. And I really wouldn't care because that's not my identity. I might disagree with you, but I don't feel like you attacked me. And so I would say that a Christian cannot afford to have their identity be in a party, nor to have the type of party loyalty that would mean you support the party even when they're wrong. I think one of the challenges that comes with the kind of partisanship or party loyalty, maybe as a way to frame it that you're describing, is that it leads to a kind of tribal blindness. And what I mean when I say that is we get into this position where we begin to assume that because my party believes X— X must be true. If the tribe says it, then it must be the case. And the inverse is true as well, right? If the other team says Y, then Y must be false. So how do we resist as Christians? How do we resist that kind of tribal partisan blindness? I think it's self-examination. 
One thing that tribes never want you to do is examine the tribe because a tribe cannot exist if they have people really questioning that. Like within those type of tribes, the myths have to stand. And the only way for them to stand is if no one really has an opportunity to question them. And so you are automatically attacked if you try to do that. Christians can't afford not to. If we look throughout history, that type of group think, not really thinking deeply through issues and just reacting or what I call opposition politics to where we're just wanting to do the opposite of what the other side is. And I would say even more than almost groupthink, that opposition-centered politics where we say if they did it, it must be wrong and I have to do the opposite is leading us into some really, really bad places. If you read history, you'll see we always have to question what's going on. And guess what? My whole thing is if I question it and it's actually good, what are you worried about? Like there's nothing to worry about questioning your party if your party is as great as you think they are. The fear that we often have and that the leaders of our parties often have is that it's not that great. And that if you actually are impartial in how you look at it, you'll find that and find a reason not to just give them your vote without making them work for it. I was talking to someone the other day who said that he's considering maybe sometime in his future running for some sort of public office. And one of the biggest roadblocks he has is, you know, he knows to do that. He's going to have to identify with one party or the other, and he knows which party he thinks that's going to be. But he wants to do what you're saying, right? He doesn't want to get into the oppositional politics thing. He doesn't want to be someone who carte blanche says it, the party says it, then it must be right. And I'm on that team. But he said, I think at the end of the day, being that kind of nonconformist candidate makes me unelectable. It's probably just a waste of my time because no one wants to elect someone like that. What would you say to people who are in that camp, who are thinking that way, considering a future in public office? I would say it can make it harder. It is much easier in a lot of spaces to say, hey, I'm a Democrat. What do y'all want me to do? I'm going to do it because I just want to be in office or same on the Republican side. I wouldn't say that it's impossible. And one of the things that Ann campaign is trying to do, along with others, is create an environment where Christians are open to voting for people in other parties and incentivizing people like your friend to run whether it's a Democrat or Republican. And again, I would just do that as a tool. But Christians should be in a position where we're looking closely enough at the issues to say, I want to incentivize people who aren't just going to hold the party line, who aren't just going to outsource their views, who are thinking through these things and don't need to stand by any kind of ideological orthodoxy, but really are trying to get the solution right. I think one of the big challenges that he was thinking through, and it obviously depends on your state and your location, but, you know, he is in a state that consistently votes Republican. And so the real election is the primary. (laughs) That's what you're getting elected. If you're the Republican, you're going to get elected to office. And that's where he feels the biggest pull here is he has to go up against other Republicans who can, you know, go top to bottom down the MAGA line and check everything off and say, yep, I agree, I agree, I agree. And he's not going to be able to do that. So what do you do in those kinds of circumstances as a politician when, you know, it's not just I'm running against the other party, I'm running against my own party and my own party maybe doesn't want someone who's nonconformist in the least. It's tough. I'm not going to sit here and say that there's a formula that I can just give you to get through that. It's very difficult. I would say you have to spend some time really strategizing, really getting to know your constituency, and hopefully they know you. One of the best things that you can do if you're running for office is not be introducing yourself while you're running. And so if you can get to people, get to know people, you can break. There are people who've broken through some of that stuff. It is tough in our landscape right now, but you got to put the work in and you got to be able to message and come up with something people can believe in. You've got to be able to speak in a way that cuts through the things that are holding a lot of 
otherwise kind of well-meaning and people who have the right idea that's holding them back. Hmm, That's really great. You were talking earlier about oppositional politics, which I certainly see. And it seems like that's one of the other big effects of partisanship is the tendency of when you have a strong sense of political identity with one party or the other, a strong sense of party loyalty, there's a tendency to demonize the other side. I have a friend who regularly says that people on the opposing party from him, he says they're all sinister or stupid. And good Christian guy, right? Like he's just saying, it's the only explanation I can have for why they would be, you know, in that party doing that. And the truth is I can think of Republicans and Democrats who say that kind of thing. The other party is just sinister or stupid. That's the only explanation I can come up with. So how would you respond to a Christian who's thinking that way about people in the other party? I would say you need to read more people on the other side. The amount of people that I try to read on both sides of the conversation has shown me that there are very intelligent people on both sides, people who are smarter than me and very well-meaning people on both sides. It doesn't mean I agree with their conclusion, but to say you could only be a terrible, bigoted or, you know, grooming person to be on one side or the other, you're reducing politics and you're listening. You know, to me, it sounds like it's not them who's not thinking. It might be you who's not thinking. I mean, we often reduce politics to make people on the other side seem like everything that's evil. But this is not a battle between good and evil. There's evil and good people. Well, none of us are good, but there's bad intentions and good intentions on both sides. And we need to read other people. There are people who can give you some recommendations on folks who are conservatives, who are intellectually honest, and folks who are progressives who are intellectually honest. And you need to read those people. And I think if you read them enough and follow them enough, you may change your mind on the idea that they must be deceptive or cruel or whatever you're saying. That's a reductionist view. And I think that's exactly what's wrong with our politics. We haven't built enough relationship to know that that just isn't the case. One last kind of topic and question to go down, just preparing ourselves for another election. And that's the importance of character in politics. This has kind of become a perennial debate. It was a debate during Bill Clinton's presidency. It became a debate again during Donald Trump's presidency and then his failed presidential run. I can point out partisans on both sides just seem to have a terrible record when it comes to caring about a candidate's character. You can find it on both sides of the aisle. And yet I know the cynical rebuttals because I'll be like, hey, I think character matters. And people will often say something like, well, look, no one in presidential politics has a good character. These people are all just egotistical, narcissistic, power hungry, not well-meaning people. That's the only way you're going to get into the presidency anyway. So you might as well just throw character out the window. It really doesn't matter if you're going to be honest. What would you say to that? I'd say that's untrue. I mean, if you look throughout history, uh, while there's a certain level of ambition that candidates may have, You see presidents, Abraham Lincoln, that are very different than other presidents and the decisions that they have to make based on their character and based on who they are. None of them are perfect, but character has to matter because this is someone who's a model, whether you want them to be or not, to the children of this country. This is someone who, while we know, again, they'll be imperfect, we have to pay attention to how they address issues and how they talk about others and their behavior. It matters. It can stain. And I think because of the choices, some of the choices we've made and ignored character, it has really hurt our public discourse because of how people spoke and how they treated other people. But we also have to realize that character is not the only thing that matters either. You can have good character and be incompetent. You can have good character and have terrible policy. So we have to look at both. But to sit here and say that character doesn't matter. Most of those people who say that weren't saying it 20, 15 years ago. 
And I think a lot of that has to do with what's in our interest at the moment or what we see as being in our interest at the moment. But that's not being consistent and faithful, in my opinion. It's motivated reasoning. It's saying, hey, I'd like this person to be elected. And if they have a poor character, well, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> this doesn't count. When you think about voting for someone, how much weight do you put on character personally? I mean, would you vote for someone? You said, yeah, they've got really an abysmal character, but everything else is there. They're highly competent. They're an effective leader. They could hold this office. They've got great policy positions, but man, they just have an awful character. If someone has an awful character, I don't see, unless the other person was just as awful, I don't see myself voting for that person. Can somebody have things in their character I disagree with? Certainly. I don't know that I've ever made a vote where that wasn't the issue, but someone that I know, because policy is not enough. You know, that person's not going to get all their policies through, but how are they going to interact with people as they do it? You may get the policy you want, but how does that impact us long term? In the long term, if you're hurting the discourse and hurting the trust within the country, I think those can have long-term effects. And so it does matter. Again, it's not everything, but it certainly has to be a serious consideration when Christians are looking at candidates. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and get our hearts and minds prepared for, <laughs> again, what will probably be another frustrated, angry, difficult, divisive political season. Any last wisdom that you'd give to Christians as we're entering into that time? Take your time. Understand that these races are important. This election cycle is important. But your public witness is more than the vote. And I think what people get really anxious about this because they feel like if I make the wrong choice, everything could go wrong. But the truth of the matter is, while your vote does count and you should be thoughtful about it, your public witness is bigger than that. It's what you do after. It's how you hold people accountable for the things they do and the things they don't do. It's what leads up to that and the issues that you're bringing up and the conversations that you're having to educate yourself and to educate others. So if you do what you can to educate yourself, if you have conversations and go back and forth with others, that says something about who you are and your character as well. And while you make that decision and should make it carefully, it's not everything. And God is still in control. That's great. Would you mind praying for our listeners just for this upcoming season? No problem. Uh, dear Lord, we know there's a lot of polarization that we're facing. Uh, that's even within the church. That we don't always see each other as neighbors, but sometimes just opponents or or uh, pawns to be used or people who we need to get rid of. And we know you have called us to much more. So regardless of what happens in this election cycle, who may be elected and who may fall and whether we support them or not, may we remember you and what you've called us to do and how you've called us to treat others. May we keep in mind that our witness is more important than winning in this particular instance, Lord Jesus that what message we send out will carry much longer than any win that we might receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Justin, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. How can people find what you guys are doing with the Ant Campaign and your personal work? For sure. So obviously you can see us on social media at A-N-D Campaign, and that's on Instagram. That's also on Twitter. You can see us on YouTube, or you can go to our website, which is andcampaign.org. Awesome. Well, I'd encourage everyone to go check that out as you're preparing for this upcoming political season. You guys are doing great work, and I think it's an important guide for Christians who are trying to navigate this with wisdom and charity, compassion, and conviction. So thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.